This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiaoik. It's our public health series today with my co-host, Azro Muhammad Khalib, CEO from the Galen Centre for Health and Social Policy. Azro, thanks as always for joining the show with me. How are you? Very well, thank you. Always a pleasure, Shaoi. And if it's not too late, happy Chinese New Year. It's never too late. Is it too late already? (laughs) Well, um, Chinese New Year is over, but I'm sure the wishes in the new rabbit year are still welcome. And um, speaking of a new year, uh, what we're doing is uh, sort of taking a bit of a look back at uh, something that was recorded in 2021 and looking at what we need to focus on in this new year to make sure that, you know, we kind of uh, don't repeat this trend. And we're actually talking about maternal mortality. Now, it's something that Malaysia has always prided itself on, especially after independence and uh, after the 1970s. Uh, when we became a nation, we really um, started to improve our healthcare system, especially rural healthcare, to take good care of our mothers and infants. And uh, as a result, we had very low maternal infant mortality rates for many years. But in 2021, something happened. We recorded a spike in pregnancy-related deaths, and it was actually the country's highest maternal mortality rate in uh, several decades. So on our public health show today, Day. Joining uh, Azrul and I uh, is consultant OBGYN, uh, obstetrician and gynecologist, Dr. John Teo. And we will be discussing um, why these uh, increase in pregnancy-related deaths are of concern and what measures are important to ensure that this trend doesn't continue. Dr. John, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm okay. Thank you for inviting me. It's really my privilege to be here. Thank you, Dr. John. Now, the deaths, uh, the statistic that I mentioned was actually 300 deaths due to pregnancy in uh, 2021. Now, um, put it into context with us because on its own, it doesn't sound like a big number, but are you alarmed and why? Right, okay. I think the first statement I want to make is that uh, if we have got even one mother dying, that is one case too much. So, of course, then if you then look at the comparison, which is the year before, which is 117, so we are talking about more than 100% to 150% increase in the maternal mortality uh, rate. And if you look at the rate, the year before, in 2020, it was about 24 per 100,000 life birth. But when you go to 2021, it is about 68. So that's nearly 180% increase in the red. And that is really like what you have mentioned is uh, last seen about 30 to 40 years ago in the 1980s. And that's really something that we should, uh, should strive to not ever have this type of red again. And uh, when it comes to the national statistics, I I would like to clarify, do we actually capture, uh, we know we have a large community or population of non-Malaysian women living here as well. Do we actually capture those statistics? As far as I know, uh, the the maternal mortality will include uh, immigrants as well as uh, locals as well. But of course, like what you say, there are... uh, foreigners who 
Perhaps also it's non-documented and there's quite a lot of them and perhaps that may actually escape detection or those that just arrived uh, recently may may not somehow be uh, recorded. The very nature that uh, there's quite a large population of undocumented means that the truth is I think we probably may not know the true number. Although, of course, it may not be very much higher, but the thing is that it is not the... I think it's not the exact number that, that uh, actually happened. Mm. Uh, you know, Shawit, uh, Dr. John is, is totally correct there. I mean, when you consider the fact that uh, the official statistics primarily come from the uh, public hospitals as well as a combination of also registration data, uh, the reality is is that whoever presents themselves to the, uh, the formal uh, healthcare setting will be captured in this data. So... Uh, you will find in the circumstances of non-nationals or migrant women or those who are undocumented who may be giving birth at home or in other informal settings, then they are not likely to be captured. But if they present uh, to hospitals or any of the medical facilities, then those uh, that data will be captured. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in Malaysia, it's around 500,000 uh, babies are born each year. Mm-hmm. And that's something that... Uh, uh, would also include uh, both Malaysians and non-Malaysians. Mm, but we do yep, know there right. are a lot of socioeconomic factors that present as barriers for migrant and undocumented women uh, to go to healthcare facilities. So that's um, something to be considered when we look at what these statistics uh, capture. Azrul, do you agree with Dr. John? You know, from your wearing, uh, you know, wearing your hat as um, as a, a policy person, a social policy person, that one death of a mother is too many? Well, you know, uh, Shao, it, it's uh, not just one mother, but also uh, the consequences it has to the the child, but also to society as a whole. Uh, maternal mortality data is used as a uh, indicator to see how well we are doing in terms of providing care uh, and ensuring that good health is, is provided for a modern society. So that's one of the indicators. We Certainly, it's part of uh, the sustainable development goals uh, that uh, is being monitored uh, by o- every country in the world. And, you know, I think we should go back also to the question, what is maternal mortality? And it really what it refers to is is the uh, number of women who die due to complications uh, during and following pregnancy and childbirth. And that's basically what we're looking at, you know, uh, in terms of uh, maternal mortality. But Picking up from what Dr. John mentioned just now, actually for Malaysia and yourself, for Malaysia, it's actually been stagnating, even though there's been some small improvement. But when you look at the numbers, it's around the 20 uh, per 100,000. So in 2017, it was around 25. And then later in 2019, it was 21.1. So it hasn't moved very far uh, in, in those years. It's still at the 20. So with this jump that we suddenly saw in 2021, it's quite alarming and uh, we really have to understand why it came about, how did it come about, and most importantly, uh, are we going to be able to prevent a similar trend happening in the next couple of years? Mm. Dr. John, what did we do well that we were able to keep it to a fairly low rate, uh, as you said, for the last 30 to 40 years? Um, what were some things that Malaysia did well? Uh, of course, Malaysia introduced uh, a lot of things in terms of uh, trying to keep our mothers safe. And over the last three or four decades, 
I think one of the main thing that uh, Malaysia is able to do very well is to provide uh, very good antenatal care. And that antenatal care continues up to today where, you know, mothers are being looked after uh, very closely and even if they do not come to default clinic appointments or whatever, uh, the clinic kesehatan nurse will actually go to their house huh, and look for them and things like that. So that is a testament of how good in terms of the antenatal care uh, we have and that's why it brings it down. And of course, the, the other big factor is of course self-delivery, you know, where women uh, before would deliver either uh, at home or in places that are not fully equipped. And now we're trying to get every woman uh, if possible. And in fact, I think more than 99% of Malaysian mothers are actually delivering in hospital in a safe environment. And of course, the third factor is uh, family planning, of course. The, in, the national family planning program started because of this high maternal mortality uh, many years ago. Uh, and it's been quite successful to bring down all this rate. But as what we said is that in the last decade or so, it's actually stagnating. So we have done very, very well, but I think there's a lot of still room for improvement. And, and that stagnation reflects now perhaps not the actual quantity quantity of uh, antenatal care we provide, but perhaps we have to look at things like the quality of antenatal care now, you know, and the set delivery practices. So when we say that the rate had been stagnating and it was around the 20s, about 20-something um, deaths per 100,000 live births, what do we know of those women who were uh, within that, that statistic? What were the issues leading to those deaths? Yeah, well, uh, you know, Shao, if you look at where we were back in the 70s and then you look at where we are today, as, as mentioned by Dr. John just now, the availability of, of modern, safe um, and effective maternal uh, health services has made a real difference. And not uh, just that, but also bringing those services into the community. Uh, because in the past, it was a really a, a big challenge for uh, women to travel to get uh, the necessary maternal care and for them to be able to get monitored consistently by a person at the women and child clinic, the clinic Kesihatan Ibu Nanana. So what happened in the 70s and 80s was an excellent move where they decentralized it rather than you going to the towns, they brought those facilities into uh, the community. So today across the country, if you see there are actually a lot of clinic uh, Ibu Danana, you know, clinic Bidan and, and so forth, which are midwife clinics and so forth, which are actually a legacy of those that period, you know, where we were intending to arrest the high uh, maternal mortality. But unfortunately, uh, despite, and I pick up from what Dr. John mentioned just now, uh, us having basically uh, almost universal uh, modern medical uh, treatment available for uh, maternal care in parts of Sabah and Sarawak, it still remains what we see back in the 70s, 80s for Peninsula. And that's why there's a lot of uh, maternal uh, deaths occurring uh, in those locations where people have to travel for hours to be able to get the kind of uh, care that they need. So, uh, you know, even though Peninsula, it seems to be sort of very much improved, but the stagnation is really due to a lot of the hard-to-reach areas. And also, not forgetting, you know, there are also inherent risks with uh, pregnancy. There's non-communicable diseases. You know, if you're diabetic, 
uh, hypertensive with cardiovascular disease and so forth, obesity, and then of course advanced age. Uh, and these are some of the factors which actually can result in preventable maternal deaths. And, and we need to ensure that whatever medical treatment is given is timely and appropriate. And that can be sometimes a major uh, um, hurdle for uh, this to actually occur, which is why I think it is interesting that the 2021 data coincides with the COVID crisis, mm. which might indicate that there might have been a disruption there. On the show today, we're discussing Malaysia's maternal mortality rate, which increased quite dramatically in 2021. We had the statistics that were released last year and we recorded 300 pregnancy-related deaths and that's our highest maternal mortality rate in several decades. As Dr. John has said, we last saw rates like this 30 to 40 years ago. Um, So joining me on the show today, uh, my co-host Azrul Muhammad Khalib from the Galen Centre for Health and Social Policy and consultant obstetrician and gynecologist Dr. John Peel. We are breaking down these numbers, what they mean for us and we'll come back to continue the discussion on why. Why did the rate increase? Why did more mothers die in childbirth in 2021? Stay tuned to Health and Living BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik, and my co-host for the Public Health Show, Azrul Muhammad Khalib, CEO of the Galen Centre for Health and Social Policy. On the show with us, consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist, Dr. John Teo. We're looking at the increase in pregnancy-related deaths recorded in 2021 that went up to 300 deaths and that was uh, at about 68 per 100,000 live births. Doesn't sound like a big number, uh, but as Dr. John has put into perspective for us earlier, um, it was more than two times compared to pregnancy-related deaths in 2020 and also, of course, from a public health from a human rights, from a social perspective, the death of one mother is one too many. Dr. John, paint us a picture of what it's like in Sabah, as Azrul said, where um, it is Peninsula Malaysia from decades ago. Right. Uh, I think, as as you know, Sabah is so huge and the community are very diverse and spread out uh, throughout. Uh, the interiors and in sometimes very far away uh, places. And of course, this is a challenge when you want to access uh, healthcare services and of course, delivery services as well. So so the, the main thing is, of course, the infrastructure and the transport system. Uh, and that, that is a big problem as compared to West Malaysia, where a lot of places are connected by good roads, right? So in, in Sabah, you, you have got sometimes a lot of places where you are far interior, you've got gravel roads, you have got muddy roads, uh, you've got landslide prone uh, areas where you can't even cross. And of course, sometimes you have to prepare. If you are pregnant, you may have to, in the latter part of pregnancy, prepare to be nearer uh, delivery uh, facilities and things like that to be safe, actually. And it's not always possible because practically when you look at it, you know, how is this woman going to uh, stay in some place for so long, you know, in the town or whatever, when she's got her own family to, to look after? And who's going to look after the kids, you know, back, back home and things like that. So these are all the practical consideration. And uh, it's always a challenge. Uh, despite saying that, of course, 
healthcare service has been, you know, going into areas and you've got nurses and, uh, you know, and doctors going going even through boards and helicopters and things like that to reach them. But, but then it cannot escape the fact that these challenges are still there and it's quite, quite glaringly obvious. Uh, I, I wanted to ask uh, Dr. John, you know, we, we sometimes talk about women and we think uh, women as a homogeneous you know, group of people, but we are also looking also in terms of adolescence, you know, that there are those who are above between the ages of 17 and 19, uh, 15 to 19 who are giving birth in Malaysia. It's captured in Malaysian data. So there has been an improvement in the adolescent birth rate, uh, meaning there are fewer uh, adolescents now giving birth compared to, uh, you know, back in 10, 10 years ago. So are we losing um, also um, young people uh, or children even to pregnancy? Uh, and are they counted in the maternal mortality statistics? Uh, yes, every every uh, maternal mortality, whether it's adolescent or whether it's adult, will be included uh, in the maternal mortality statistics. Uh, only thing is, of course, I don't have private to the exact figures and and to to say you know how how many are actually involved. Uh, but one would have thought that there may be a few you know which end up uh, losing their life as well. And of course, adolescence is even more disadvantaged uh, because they don't have the capacity to actually, you know, go to themselves, go by themselves to the healthcare facilities. Neither sometimes have the understanding that the importance of actually having these uh, healthcare chats and follow up uh, and go on. I actually have the, the birth rate, the adolescent birth rate. If you look at 2019, yeah. uh, it was 8.2 adolescents per 1,000 uh, women aged 15 to 19 who gave birth and yep. 11.8 in 2015. So it's actually improved. There are fewer now adolescents who are giving birth, but you know it goes back to your point just now, Dr. John. We don't know how many actually died. Uh, yes, I mean, we're, we're not privy to that, that figure. Uh, but also when you talk about birth rates, I think we have to take cognizance of the fact that there's a, there's a difference between birth rate and pregnancy rate. Because of course, uh, the birth rates are those most of the time delivered in... Uh, healthcare facilities, and most of them in government facilities. And so they are recorded as birth rates. But on the other hand, if you talk about pregnancy rate, and you've got pregnancy has got three outcomes, which is number one, birth. And number two is, of course, uh, abortion. And number three is, of course, uh, miscarriage. So we in these three categories, we, we do not have other data to, to know exactly what, what are those figures. So the total pregnancy rate or the actual pregnancy rate uh, may may not come down. We, we're not sure, right? And there's something that we, we do need to look, look into. Mm. Would adolescent mothers be at risk of not receiving antenatal care because of the circumstances of their pregnancy? Yes, yes. They're in fact much, much higher risk than uh, their adult women and those who are, for example, are married and so on and so forth. The, the reason is, of course, most adolescent pregnancy are actually unintended. And the very fact that they were unintended means that they present late most of the time. And so, of course, if there's any complication, uh, it will be detected late. So, in fact, there are much more a higher risk of problems and they are really a much more vulnerable group 
uh, than 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 other uh, other women who are pregnant actually. Let's talk a little bit about those complications. You know, um, back when maternal mortality rates were very high, what were the complications that typically led to the deaths uh, among the mothers? And, uh, you know, what have we been able to mitigate um, through antenatal care? Uh, right. Of course, you know, in the uh, decades ago, you know, mothers die because of for example, postpartum hemorrhage, where they bleed huh? after they deliver, uh, they die because of uh, high blood pressure and things like that, you know, uncontrolled high blood pressure and things like that. And and these complications over the decades, we have actually have got very much more better medical care to decrease all these complications and decrease the risk of dying. So I'm not sure that this, this complication are a bit less then, for example, uh, now other complications such as obstetric embolism, blood clots in the legs and things like that. So, as as I said, uh, medical advance and medical care has improved very much over the years. Yeah. But I think what is also glaringly not, not actually has uh, improved, rather, is actually the family planning rate and the consultative prevalence rate. Because we know that the usage of family planning, if you have women who are maximally using it, especially those who do not want to get pregnant, we can actually decrease the, the maternal mortality rate, rate by down to about by 30%. So that's a huge reduction. Problem is, of course, the pre prevalence of contraceptive usage has not improved over the last 20 mm. to 30 decades. What and we're still it? stuck at the same same level. Yeah, where where are we at now? If you look at the last survey, right, by OPPKN, uh, the prevalence rate is about 50-something percent. But if you look at the modern contraception, it's only about 35%. So that's really quite low compared to other countries uh, who, who are hitting about 60 to 70%. And we have not improved at all. And in particular, if you look at the long-acting uh, contraception, for example, the implants and the IUDs, which are highly effective, uh, particularly in preventing even adolescent pregnancy and things, uh, those rates are very, very low at less than a percent and even like two or three percent. And and that's all. So I think there must be a push towards, you know, making sure that the family planning program is being taken up by women who do not want to get pregnant. What is the link for people who actually don't realise it? What is the link between contraceptive use and good maternal health? Right. Uh, the main point is, of course, contraception helps you to plan your pregnancy so that you only get pregnant when you're ready to get pregnant. So that allows the maximal maternal health because when you're ready, you're more likely to have better antenatal care. You're more likely to seek antenatal care earlier and, of course, detect complications earlier. And, of course, you're more likely to be prepared mentally and physically for any pregnancy. So contraception allows that. And, of course, it also allows you to space out your pregnancy uh, so that we now know that it's quite clear evidence that close, very close uh, interval between pregnancy has got really negative outcome for mothers and babies as well. Uh, so usually the recommendation is about two years between pregnancy and allows you to, to do that as well. 
So it has got so much more uh, benefit. And of course, ultimately, you cannot die of a pregnancy you never have. Mm. So if you then know that, if you then take note that about 40% of pregnancy are unplanned and unintended, so you can then postulate that out of those maternal mortality, we can save about 30 to 40% of women who should not die. You know, the, the, the issue here is, is that a lot of families, a lot of couples, uh, especially those newly wed, uh, you know, they f- feel that uh, they shouldn't be uh, planning their pregnancies or uh, they shouldn't be preventing a pregnancy that, that's meant to happen. And you very often find uh, these families where the kids are being punched out like movie tickets, you know, uh, with no spacing whatsoever. You know, after the first uh, kid is born, the next one comes and the third, and it's very little spacing uh, and it's very close. And and people don't really fully understand that this could be uh, detrimental, uh, not to the father, uh, but to the mother, you know. And, and there is very little thought there in terms of wanting to make sure that her needs are uh, taken care of, but also the dangers in having such close uh, uh, pregnancies. And uh, for some people, especially culturally and religiously, it's felt that, you know, it's riziki, it's it's a gift of, from God, and therefore contraception is viewed as interfering with that. Uh, I mean, how, how do we go about trying to uh, educate and make aware of the need to ensure that we space out these births rather than have them in close uh, proximity to each other? I mean, how can we change minds here? Right. I think I think it's probably a multi-pronged approach. Uh, you know, one of the things we can do is, of course, more public health uh, campaign and more public health messaging as to the benefits of uh, planning your pregnancy. But not forgetting that, of course, uh, communities themselves have to understand the negative implications uh, of all this cross-pregnancy and, you know, large family and of course, then you also need to involve community leaders as well, uh, who 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 can actually uh, try to make uh, the population or the community understand this. And of course, you have to involve all the other stakeholders. You know, like the government, the politician. So it's actually a combined effort. It's it's complex, but yet if we can actually get all stakeholders on the same page then I think there is a bit of hope as to how we can progress and uh, have better health healthcare and health throughout the community. It's certainly not the job of OBGYNs alone, right? Because you only see them at the point where complications have probably mm. already set in. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what happened uh, in 2021 or, or maybe leading up to the maternal mortality rate uh, in 2021. Um, The official causes of maternal deaths that were recorded were obstetric embolism, like you said, Dr. John. That was the main cause of death. There was postpartum hemorrhage, gestational hypertension, ectopic pregnancy and eclampsia. Um, And you said that these are sort of... um, the emerging complications now that we've dealt with uh, some of the others through good antenatal care. Uh, Some thoughts, Dr. John, on why these developments or or these conditions uh, suddenly increased leading to the deaths in 2021? Right. I think those complications are there the years before and a few years ago. But of course, 
the difference in 2021 is of course the numbers, you know, where the numbers has actually increased. The composition, I don't think, has changed too much in terms of the different categories of complications. But also, I think from the Department of Statistics, it's been noted that out of these 300 uh, deaths, uh, about more than 50%, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, it's about 57% are COVID-related. So the fact, the fact is that, of course, uh, even if it's COVID-related, in the end of the day, we know that a maternal mortality is multifactorial, isn't it? And that even if it's COVID-related, how, how fast is the access to healthcare? How much healthcare is there for that woman? Uh, how much are we able to handle uh, her complication considering the constraints of the pandemic? where you know, our healthcare system is being really uh, quite overwhelmed at, at that time. So if you then look back, you you would say that, yes, the, the I mean, this pandemic is something that you cannot prevent, uh, but perhaps the lesson to take, to take from it is that as in any healthcare crisis, the first thing we, we need to do is to quickly focus on pregnant women and vulnerable women, because these are the ones who is going to suffer the most in any healthcare crisis. And in particular, the, the pandemic has exposed this to the maximum. So in other words, the maternal care or perhaps the lack thereof is a very, very strong indicator that our system was not prepared, was not pandemic-proofed, right? Because like you said, we can't prevent the uh, pandemic itself, but we were evidently not responding quickly enough to perhaps vaccinate them earlier and, and uh, keep an eye out for their complications earlier. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, no healthcare system would be pandemic proof in, in a sense, you know, even uh, throughout the world. But uh, perhaps if looking back, and of course, in hindsight, it's always easy to say, you know, but it's just the lessons that we, we want to learn so that we can try to prepare for the next, uh, you know, crisis. And that earlier on, of course, we want to make sure that women are able to continue uh, to access the antenatal care, for example. So women are able to reach safe delivery uh, facilities, for example. Women are able to uh, access their family planning if they need, for example. And and this, these are the challenges in, in, in COVID where, you know, we, we didn't put them on the forefront. And of course, this is the intended effect. Um, you know, to answer your question, Shari, also, and to add on to Dr. John, you know, Malaysia actually was one of the most prepared countries, actually, when you look at it from the health system's perspective in terms of preparation towards a disease outbreak. Uh, there was a 2019 Global Health Security Index uh, that was uh, put together by the Economist uh, Intelligence Unit and um, several other partners that placed Malaysia's 18th place amongst 195 countries and third uh, in the Asia region, actually better than Singapore at being prepared for this. but. The fact of the matter is, when we look at maternal mortality as an indicator, you find that in almost every country in the world, because of the COVID crisis, their indicators have worsened. And this includes the US, UK, European countries, and so forth. And that's got to do with the 
uh, nature of the disease, also targeting vulnerable uh, populations, which include vulnerable women, but also the fact that, um, you know, perhaps at one point we were also uh, reluctant to administer the vaccine uh, to uh, women who were pregnant because we, at that point of time, did not know whether or not I would have any adverse uh, effects. And later on, it was found that it was fine uh, to vaccinate, but perhaps the 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 period of time in which between uh, the COVID outbreak and eventual vaccination did claim, uh, you know, uh, unknown number of lives, and and that's the tragedy of that. And I totally agree, you know, in terms of uh, the need for us to improve our resiliency and preparedness uh, frameworks to in the future uh, make uh, pregnant women. Uh, a population that we need to prioritize to protect. And I think perhaps uh, one lesson from COVID is that we didn't do so well in that respect. And that's not just for Malaysia, it's almost every country in the world. Dr. John, if family planning use uh, was already quite dismal in Malaysia, even before the pandemic, how did the lockdown periods exacerbate that? Right. The lockdown period obviously made it even worse because in terms of access. And of course, the big problem is uh, the mobility of women, the ability to reach uh, healthcare facilities or pharmacies uh, to have their supplies. Uh, you know, the, the lockdown restrict, restrict movement and, and that becomes, becomes a, a huge problem. Uh, so that's why, as I said, I think we, we do need to actually look at these uh, problems and have special uh, ways to actually tackle it so that the supplies is uh, actually uh, not, not interrupted. Uh, the thing is, of course, because there's no face-to-face -face, uh, face -to -face, uh, counselling or rather is a, a lot of things is through uh, online. So it, sometimes we, uh, women are not used to assessing all these online things, especially the communities that, are, for example, in the rural areas where internet is not so good, uh, and things like that. So this really made the gap even uh, wider. And finally, I think one big point is that during the pandemic, uh, we have not classified family planning as essential services. So that, that, that again is a is a seriously one wow. of the thing, yes that one of the thing that we we should be doing. So when when the lockdown happened, family planning some family planning services were. Uh, actually being uh, asked, you know, whether they can operate or not. And of course, I found out that they were not under the essential services category. And uh, that, that even made things worse because it should be classified as essential services and it should be prioritized as one of the most important uh, healthcare services in, in a crisis. So it was considered as a luxury. You can just close them temporarily, contrary to everything that you're saying, right? In terms of how important it is for maintaining a woman's health when she's yes. planning a family. Um, you, you, you talked earlier about, you know, how services like the midwives, the bidans, uh, have been so integral in, in our community in ensuring good maternal care. Uh, I'm just wondering, Dr. John, if we're, we are looking at resilience, um, future-proofing uh, maternal care, ensuring that we learn from these lessons, um, we are facing a chronic problem of nursing care. Is this affecting um, the provision of midwife services as well and therefore 
resulting in affecting maternal care? It seems to me that, you know, again, I don't have the exact data, but it seems to me that, of course, as uh, the number of nurses and the ability of nurses uh, come down, then, of course, maternal care uh, would be affected as well. Uh, in the private sector, for example, uh, certain certain places is quite difficult to get enough nurses uh, for midwife, for example, uh, and to make sure that there is enough uh, midwife to provide for this uh, care. And in government, uh, as far as I know, I mean, the numbers are still there, but uh, I think this is actually a nationwide problem. And until we actually make, make sure that the supply of uh, nurses increase for both the private and uh, public sector, uh, then inevitably some of the services will be uh, affected in some way or another. Uh, let me uh, explore a little bit more about that point, uh, Dr. John, because we always talk about doctors uh, as if yeah. basically they're uh, the uh, ones who are Absolutely necessary, but let's face it, Doctor John. Uh, people don't need you, but they do need the uh, the nurses, right? The the midwives and the highly specialized individuals who actually go to see the communities, help provide counselling, help to provide uh, the kind of care for uh, pregnant women. So, uh, you know, is this a, a a very hard to find profession? I mean, do we have enough nurses uh, who are able to provide these services? Uh, for the long run, uh, and in a place like Sabah, do you see a shortage in the kind of nurses needed to assist in improving the maternal mortality rates? You are absolutely right, uh, Asru. That basically, <laughs> you know, the large majority of uh, antenatal care and even delivery care is provided by midwife, yep. and doctors are there if there are complications to prevent complications and there's complex case. So, so the backbone of safe antenatal care and safe delivery and in fact safe, safe postpartum care is, is midwife and nurses. And of course, we should never ever, you know, uh, dispel from that fact. So the question is, of course, is there enough? Uh, the truth is in most situations, there will never be enough because if you talk about what is the number? If you want to say what is enough, then it is like the ideal would be one-to-one -one care. You know, one midwife to one pregnant woman delivering. And of course, you know, one midwife looking after a few other uh, antenatal patients who come to the clinic. But of course, it will be something that you know, for a long time, we may find it difficult to achieve. So not enough is perhaps a relative relative word, you know, because we always need more. Well, I, I give you a chance here, Doctor. You know, in a few weeks' time, the government of Malaysia is going to be presenting, tabling in, in Parliament, Budget 2023. So if you had the ear of the Prime Minister right now, and you're able to whisper to him what you would like to see improve when it comes to maternal mortality, What's your number one priority? My number one priority is, of course, to have more fundings in terms of maternal health. Uh, from the current level, we have to increase at least another 100% if possible and to focus 
on family planning as well because I think we neglected that for for a long time. So funding, but focused, um, prioritized for family planning as one of the in- integral part. Uh, maternal care, antenatal care, and self delivery. We've been doing this for a long, long time, and of course, as I said, we have achieved one of the one of the really best system in the world actually and malaysia is one of the model for quite a lot of other countries so of course you need much more funding to ensure that we have these high standards and we have to ensure that we have to focus on number one now not the quantity of care but the quality of care so that we can bring down uh, the maternal mortality rate further down right and the the other thing which is the large gap is family planning which we have neglected for so long. So in short, if I can make it very, very, very uh, quickly, it would be investment in quality of care in terms of antenatal and delivery and focusing on family planning, these two arms. Do we need to reframe how family planning is provided so that it's not, number one, a non-essential, nice-to-have service, but part of maternal care that... that can be embodied um, the moment a young woman seeks healthcare, not even when she's uh, already in pregnancy. Right. I think it's always been part of women care and it's always been a part of uh, women who are pregnant, for example, if they deliver, if you look at all the clinic kesehatans or the hospitals and things, they've been always providing family planning. You know, so it's always been part of that. The, the The problem is, of course, this stagnation. And how do we tackle the tackle the stagnation so that we can increase the usage of, of family planning? So there, there, there need to be a lot of things and investment done in terms of further training, in terms of organization of how, how we're going to deliver uh, family planning care and in particular quality care so that there's a higher uptake. So it's, it's not as... It's not just uh, as simple as reframing the whole thing, but actually to put efforts into increasing the quality of care in terms of family planning. Um, In wrapping up, Dr. John, I'd just like you to sort of try and project if we don't reverse this trend that we saw in 2021, um, how much worse are things going to get as, you know, the effects ripple outwards? I think... 2021 seems to be a once-off. And as the pandemic settled, a lot of the barriers are not there anymore in terms of accessibility to healthcare. You know, there's no more lockdown, uh, things things like that. And uh, less of, uh, for example, even the immigrants, you know, where they're afraid to come out because of enforcement activities and things like that. So it's a bit back to normal in that sense. So I would, that of course the rate will have come down. The question is of course how much is it coming down and is it coming down back to just the pre-pandemic level or will it come down even further so that we continue to improve further? Azrul, any wrap-up thoughts? Well, you know, I I would add to uh, Dr. John's uh, uh, views there by saying that we need more disaggregated data uh, because it's uh, one thing to look at the overall data, which we we see right now, we're discussing today and see that it's now 
68.2. But if we look at the disaggregated data according to state, but also the different communities, we might find there to be a vast discrepancy between those in the urban and rural areas amongst the Orang Asal community versus, say, uh, the Indian community and so forth. And we really need that data uh, to ensure that we're able to deliver the kind of care that's needed for uh, pregnant mothers, because we don't know where the gaps are by just looking at just this one big data. Uh, but, you know, when you look at other countries, the fact that they're experiencing the same thing means that we also have the same weaknesses, but we also have the advantage of learning from them to see how we can do better. So we need that disaggregated data from uh, the government to understand better where those gaps and opportunities are. Yes, and our programs then need to be more targeted. Yeah. So data, it all starts with that. Um, we need to know where the gaps are. Who are the women who are left behind? Thank you so much for joining me for this discussion today. Dr. John Teo, consultant obstetrician and gynecologist in Sabah, and my co-host, Azro Mohamed Khalib, CEO of the Galen Centre for Health and Social Policy. This has been Health and Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.